Way out in the South Pacific, far from any other known island, lay the island of Evoldnesep. On the island, for ages untold, lived two tribes, the Evols and the Eseps. The boundary between the two tribes was not well defined and was often disputed. Hunting parties near the border would often find themselves in fights with the other tribe. If someone was killed in one of these skirmishes, a raiding party would be sent to the other tribe's territory to avenge the death, which would inevitably lead to counter-raids and so on. The two tribes lived in constant fear of each other. Every morning, the people of the tribe would gather as their shaman prayed to their tribe's god, Please protect us today from the evil tribe on the other side of the island. One day, two brothers from another South Pacific island were out fishing in their outrigger canoe when a huge storm came up suddenly and washed them far out to sea. The storm lasted a day and a night. When it was over, the brothers were far from any land and had no idea where their island was. They drifted for forty days and forty nights. By the end of the ordeal, the brothers were near death. Then a second storm came up and broke their canoe in two. One brother held on to one side of the canoe, and one held on to the other. Fortunately, the storm swept the brothers ashore onto the island of Evoldnesep, but one brother washed up onto the beaches of the tribe of Evols, and the other onto the beaches of the Eseps. Near death, each brother was rescued by their respective tribe and nurtured back to health. They each thought the other one had died in the storm and grieved the loss of their beloved brother. From the start, both brothers were treated like members of their respective tribes and found their tribe members to be amazingly kind and loving. They became accustomed to life in their new tribe, and life was good. Then, a year later, the two brothers were in hunting parties that came into opposite sides of a clearing in the island's forest at the same time. Immediately, they drew their bows and readied their spears for battle. But then, in a moment of recognition, the two brothers threw down their weapons and ran together in the center of the clearing, hugging, crying, and laughing. They were overjoyed to see one another. The other members of both hunting parties watched in surprise and amazement. After their initial moments of rejoicing, the elder brother expressed how sad he was that his younger brother had been captured by such an evil tribe, and how loving and kind his tribe was. Surprised, the younger brother told his older brother he was mistaken, that it was the older brother who had been taken captive by the evil tribe, and it was his tribe that was so kind and loving. The brothers stopped and looked at each other for several moments. Then they started to laugh at the same time as it dawned on them that both tribes were filled with gracious and kind people who simply feared the other tribe. The brothers organized a peace conference between the Evols and the Eseps. Although each tribe was highly skeptical, they attended the conference because of their love and respect for the brothers. Each brother explained how he had been treated with such kindness and compassion by his tribe and how each tribe only felt that the other tribe was evil because of their fear of the other tribe. The brothers then organized a forgiveness jamboree where tribal members described how devastated they had been by the death of a loved one killed by the other side. The member of the other tribe who had killed the family member was invariably distraught by the pain he had caused, begged forgiveness, and was ultimately forgiven by the victim's family. Following the forgiveness jamboree, 
The Evols and the Eseps got together regularly for festivals and celebrations. They became very close, and intermarriages were quite common. In future generations, the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the tribal members who held the jamboree would often laugh that their ancestors had lived in fear of such a kind and generous people. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, episode 48, Time for a Change. So, we boomers have done many things wrong, but we did at least one thing right. We raised a generation of children who are the first generation in the history of the world without a foreign enemy they view as an outgroup. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union, no country poses an existential threat to the U.S. Fox and other neoconservative news sources have done their best to make Muslim countries the new outgroup. But as former chairman and CEO of Fox News, Roger Ailes has described it, Fox is a channel for people from 55 till dead. And it has been us boomers who have bought into Fox News and CNN's Fear of the Islamists message. Our younger generations, for the most part, have not subscribed to this message. Having gone to school with Islamic classmates and understanding how kind, generous, and supportive they are. When these generations look at the world, they don't see the outgroups that we boomers do. We've spent 200 millennia to arrive at this point. The era of history that we've been following since why Adam and mitochondrial Eve have been pointing to this moment. Let's spend the last few episodes exploring what this means. We saw how Adam and Eve were deeply bonded to their tribe. As we've seen, many anthropologists have strongly argued for the innate goodness of human nature based on their studies of indigenous cultures, cultures that showed amazingly deep and enduring bonds with their tribe. These were genuinely kind people who treated each other with great tenderness and compassion. Yes, there's been another side to human nature that has accompanied us throughout our entire journey. But this kindness and tenderness also lies at the core of what it means to be human. As caring as they could be with tribal members, Adam and Eve viewed Homo sapiens from other tribes with fear and anger, and with good reason. Other tribes similarly viewed Adam and Eve's tribe, with fear and anger as well. As Homo sapiens, we all started out with a high degree of reactive aggression. This led early Homo sapiens to score off into separate warring bands. This undoubtedly went back to well before Adam and Eve. Their ancestors were undoubtedly like this as well. We've seen it all the way back to chimpanzees. Initially. Killing members of other bands was probably not too common. Such killings would have been hand-to-hand. Humans have never excelled at this kind of killing. But like the chimps at Gombe, it undoubtedly happened when questions of territory became too personal. When it did happen, 
we were probably just as ecstatic as the chimps at Gombe doing their pant hoot victory dance when they killed an enemy chimp. This reactive aggression was exacerbated by the advent of agriculture in our first cities. Human tribes were undoubtedly egalitarian until we developed agriculture in cities. When we visited Uruk, one of the first cities, we saw that agriculture brought us an explosion of culture, material prosperity, and religion. It also brought us the rise of kings, nobility, and class differences, including the world's first class of permanently poor, and organized warfare. With this, we saw an increase in the use of slaves as a permanent part of the economy, as well as a priestly class who sometimes engaged in human sacrifice in their religious ceremonies. Through it all, people retained their gentleness and compassion toward members of their own family and those seen as their in-groups. Still, the most striking fact of human history is the lack of compassion our species shows to other humans who are viewed as outgroups. Along with the, sometimes extreme, amounts of reactive aggression we exhibit toward these outgroups. This can go far beyond a simple lack of compassion to a positive enjoyment in watching the pain and anguish of others, something I've called schadenfreude joy. In ceremonies that would be repeated innumerable times as mankind spread across the earth, Priests high on their temples in the ancient Sumerian cities ritually sacrificed their war captives. From what we can tell, these were very public ceremonies. Presumably, the entire population gathered to cheer them on and enjoy the great spectacle. The emotions felt by the citizens of Uruk as they watched their enemies tied up, terrified, and ritually slaughtered would be mirrored in innumerable cities throughout prehistory. If we accept our initial premise that we started with, that Adam and Eve were somewhere between chimpanzees and true humanity, it would seem that from the beginning, 200,000 years ago, to the first cities, 10,000 years ago, a full 95% of the time we have been a species, we hadn't made much progress on increasing our humaneness, on becoming fully human. We've spent the bulk of our podcast examining the path we've taken on this track since then. By the time of the Roman Empire, another 8,000 years, the use of terror, torture, and killing of outgroups was no longer used in religious ceremonies, but as a means of mass entertainment for Roman citizens in the Colosseum. As long as they were seen as outsiders, enemies captured in war, criminals, or Christians, it was still fun to watch others being tortured and killed. But now it would have seemed barbaric to sacrifice another human to a god. A very small incremental change, perhaps, but one small step toward a more compassionate humanity. Fast forward another 500 years or so, and we found a new development that would pretty much replace slavery in Europe. Serfdom was beginning to establish itself in Western Europe after the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476 AD. Within a few hundred years, the serf would largely replace the slave throughout Europe. Serfs were certainly not like free men, but they were definitely a step above slaves. They had their own home, they could accumulate their own property, 
and some even had a modicum of wealth. They could not be sold independently as a slave could. They were tied to the land. They couldn't move and owed their lord a certain amount of labor and a percentage of their crops every year. Though serfs were owned by their lord and bought and sold with their land, it was definitely a step above slavery. As often happens in history, however, humanity often temporarily loses some of the ground that it had gained. With the age of exploration came the discovery of an African population that was not as militarily advanced as Europe and therefore subject to slavery and exploitation. The age of exploration also opened up the Caribbean to sugar cultivation. With this came the need for people to cultivate sugarcane in the brutal tropical climate. By 1672, the Royal African Company was given a charter by Charles II of England, and the transatlantic slave trade started in earnest. This incarnation of slavery was worse than anything seen in Roman times because it not only devastated the lives of the slaves, but it also devastated cultures over vast swaths of northern and western Africa that had been stable for hundreds of years. Still, once humanity has taken a step forward, sooner or later the promise of that eventually comes to fruition. And so it was in Europe. A little over a hundred years after the gory Royal African Company Charter, France abolished slavery in its territories in 1792, followed four decades later by the British in 1833. The 13th Amendment would finally outlaw slavery in the U.S. three decades later in 1865, following a brutal civil war. The movement toward the recognition that owning our brothers was evil, that began with serfdom around 500 A.D., that would end up with the abolition of slavery in the southern U.S., took over 1,300 years to be realized. History has been a long, slow march to overcome our reactive aggression, an incredibly slow but inexorable advance toward increasing our humanity, or, as I put it before, toward becoming fully human. Following the Industrial Revolution, and especially with the advent of the communication revolution, however, we saw social change begin to occur much more quickly. The English abolitionist movement began in 1765. It took almost 70 years to abolish slavery in England. The suffrage movement in the U.S. began in earnest in the 1860s with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. They worked tirelessly their entire adult lives to see women vote. Both of them died before the 19th Amendment was ratified, allowing women the right to vote in 1920. From 1948, when President Truman signed Executive Order 9981, ending segregation in the armed forces, untold thousands worked tirelessly for African-American civil rights. The Civil Rights Act passed in 1964. The gay rights movement is generally seen to have started with the Stonewall Riots of 1969. Gay marriage was guaranteed as a right in all states by the Supreme Court in 2015. Though rights for LGBTQ and people of color have far to go, it's not likely to take the centuries that such advancement of humanity used to take. Networking, 
the Internet, and two new generations that are used to working together collaboratively provide the basis of an electorate that expects to see change and is willing to make it happen. We've taken 200,000 years to get to where we are now. We started off with thousands and thousands of warring tribes, each one complete with millennia of evolution and hardwiring in them to treat those not in their in-groups with reactive aggression. As this trait is the same trait observed in chimpanzees, it's very possible that we have been developing and nurturing this trait since our last common ancestor with the chimps over five million years ago. We could do another timeline of increasing war technology here as well. With our ever-increasing ability to kill each other up to our current nuclear arsenals that could destroy all life on Earth several times over, we could do another timeline of the inexorable increase in the number of people killed per war in the numerous human conflicts over the centuries, a standoff over territory and who gets to control the local watering hole 200,000 years ago, may have led to a couple casualties, as the tribes were initially armed with stones and sharpened sticks, and opponents fought each other in hand-to-hand combat. By the time of World War II, millions of people were killed as part of Hitler's final solution, and between the Allied firebombings in cities such as Dresden and Hamburg, the U.S. firebombings in Tokyo, the nuclear holocausts of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, many hundreds of thousands, mostly civilians, died. In total, World War II caused an estimated 75 million deaths of civilians and combatants. That's enough of a review for us, given our time constraints. But obviously, there's much more. It took 8,000 generations or so for Homo sapiens to get some form of unity. That is, the point where the bulk of mankind is no longer living at risk of being invaded or nuclear bombed by a foreign country. The boomer generation freed humanity from the strictures of being governed by the mores and conventions of previous generations. Lacking a foundation in the social conventions that bound our parents to their society, however, we gravitated to the selfish philosophies of Rush Limbaugh, Fox News, and the adversarial, alienating philosophies of people like Rachel Maddow. Millennials and Gen Z, however, inherited a world where they were free from the pressure to conform to the norms of their parents. They didn't have to rebel to have the freedom to assume their own code of mores and ethics. It's a mouthful to refer to these generations as Millennials and Gen Z, and since I'm going to argue that we're likely to be entering a major turning point in history, one that will be driven by these generations. I'll be referring to these generations as the axial generations. One of Nero's fiddle's recurring themes is that abundance creates weak character and adversity creates strong character. The prodigal generation grew up in a time of great abundance. We rallied to our generation's theme of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The millennial generation grew up as the prodigals were squandering the inheritance that the greatest generation had left them. For the millennials, this meant that if they wanted the same college education their parents had, they would have to incur so much debt that the dream of the upper-middle-class lifestyle of their parents was much further out of reach for them. 
In addition to this, many millennials began their early adulthood during the Great Recession, a recession that it's worth noting was caused by the prodigal's belief that people shouldn't have to sacrifice to save up a down payment for a house, and that there would be no downside to no down sign only home loans. With an economy that's less robust than the economy their parents had inherited, millennials make less than prodigals did when the prodigal generation entered the job market as young adults. They've had to incur exceptionally high levels of student loans to get a college education. Despite these obstacles, Axials save much more than their parents did at the same point in their career. This includes higher rates of retirement savings. Not only are Axials more disciplined in their financial lives than prodigals were at the same age, but they're much more communal than their parents. By communal here, I don't mean communistic but much more likely to work with others toward a common goal. In contrast, growing up in the prodigal generation, I learned to value individualism and value my individual achievements. Axials grew up playing organized soccer, baseball, volleyball, and other team sports. They got trophies for participation, not just for outstanding achievement. We prodigals listened to our teachers lecture to the entire class, then worked on our schoolwork individually. Axials were provided significant group time in school. Their learning had a much more cooperative nature to it, rather than the individual nature that education had always had before that. This has helped create a communal ethic for the Axials, in which they prefer working together toward a goal, rather than individually for achievement. I think it goes without saying that the Internet is natural for them. In addition, the issue of racism has become a non-issue for so many axials. It turns out that integration worked. White, black, brown, and Muslim children all attend the same school now and increasingly see no meaningful difference in these distinctions. According to a Washington Post poll, more students attend schools with children of different races than ever before. Over two-thirds of our children attend school in diverse districts. This is up 20% over what it was in 1997 and is a complete reversal from diversity numbers when their parents were attending school. Although much still needs to be done on integration, most white children go to school in diverse districts and know people of other ethnicities or beliefs personally, people you grew up with and who are your school playmates just aren't scary, aren't different, and they're not outgroups. There's no need for reactive aggression when you don't consider someone of another race an other. This is why I've long felt the Axials will be the generation to overcome racism. The Axial generations will simply see no meaningful difference between the races. There's no prejudice against someone whom you consider to be part of your in-group. So, the Axials have demonstrated less prejudice, more financial control than their parents, less emotionalism, a more communal spirit, and more genuine compassion. They demonstrate less reactive aggression. It's difficult to see them rushing into the wars of aggression their parents have. It's this group 
that will be facing the worst of the financial and environmental challenges that the prodigals have created. Is this enough to convince me that they'll change the world? No. There's one final piece to the puzzle that convinces me they'll be the generations to change the world, the axis upon which the world will pivot. That is, they simply have no choice. Prodigals have been writing checks with no money in the bank, both fiscally and environmentally, for far too long. The Axials will be the generations in charge when these checks come back marked insufficient funds. It's possible that the Axials could continue spending as much as their parents do and driving ever bigger SUVs, but I doubt it. Tough times build strong character. Will the Axials rise to the challenge that has been dealt to them? I think so. They're much more communal and used to working together than us independent prodigals. As their increased proclivity to save has shown, they're more willing and capable of preparing for the future than we were. And remember when I said the Renaissance flowered after the devastation of the Black Death? Our COVID pandemic is not as severe as the medieval Black Death. It's been life-changing for some, but it's at least a major disruption in the lives of the Axials. A disruption we prodigals never had at their age. It's likely to help create stronger character among Axials. What then will the world look like when Axials take over from us prodigals? As I've said, history is an incredible tool to help understand the future, but it provides only general directions, not the ability to discern any specific path. But it can do one more thing. A generation that understands its role in history is a generation upon which history pivots. For example, the generation of women during World War I saw it as their purpose to pass universal suffrage. And on August 18, 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution was passed, granting women the right to vote. On December 7, 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, leading a generation of Americans to see their purpose to be defeating fascism across the globe. And in the late 1950s and early 60s, a new generation of Americans saw it their purpose to overturn segregation. They passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The Axials will have their turn. They have not heard their call yet. Still, I'm convinced they will. So far in American history, every generation that has lived in extraordinary times has risen to the challenge. The Axials have already shown far more character than their parents. So early indications are that they, too, will meet their generation's challenge. There are many of us prodigals who will gladly join the fight and work with them to halt global warming. I've left Gen X out of much of this discussion, not because they're unimportant. They will be crucially important. But because they're somewhere between the prodigals and the axials, some have adopted the characteristics of the prodigals. Others are more like axials. It'll be up to each Gen Xer to choose their place in the upcoming struggle. Should enough of them decide to join the axials, it could be a game changer. Sadly, 
It takes a critical mass for a generation to be able to make a meaningful change. And we prodigals just don't have that critical mass. It seems the best we can do is play a supporting role. Even more sad is the fact that our generation, liberal or neoconservative, seems to have almost no interest in being fiscally responsible. It appears that balancing the federal budget will unfortunately be up to the axials. We've got enough of a grasp of the general workings of chaos, how systems work, and basic game theory at this point to have a feel for how history might play out during the Axial's watch. The standard historical thread in almost any previous historical ethic would have been some variation on the following theme. A population continues to deny their poor financial decisions. Then, during a particularly strong economic downturn, interest rates rise, as they periodically always do. The U.S. has trouble paying its debt. With the debt-to-GDP ratio nearing that of Greece during its financial crisis, America's credit rating is downgraded. With downgraded credit, the U.S. now has to pay significantly higher interest in order to sell its bonds, in order to pay its debt. Stressed by the financial downturn, U.S. taxpayers rebel at the prospect of having to pay higher taxes. Without the ability to raise the required revenue, the U.S. defaults on a bond payment. With the U.S. defaulting on its debt, the world economy, which is based on the dollar, goes into a tailspin. By this time, near-permanent drought conditions in many places throughout the globe make the record wildfires that we've seen in recent years look like child's play. Without tax revenue in a global depression, governments are unable to pay the huge sum required for firefighters to fight fires, which now burn out of control annually. This, along with the ongoing droughts that are endemic now from the mid-latitudes to the equator, has put extreme stress on many countries. With so much global stress, tension between the U.S. and other countries runs extremely high. Perhaps it is with petroleum-producing countries, or perhaps an argument with terrorists that is exacerbated by the fact that they're of a different creed or belief than we are. At any rate, sooner or later, our reactive aggression gets the better of us, and we get into a war that only exacerbates the financial and environmental problems. There are thousands of possible variations on this basic theme, but they all end disastrously. There is a point that humankind could have stopped global warming. But now, with the world economies in a tailspin, and with reactive aggression spinning out of control all over the world, there's no solution. Humanity has become like so many rats in a cage. This is a reference to the famous experiment in which rats are placed in a small cage and deprived of food and water and put under stress. When their stress levels raises to a critical level, the rats turn on each other and fight their fellow rats, even though their companions have nothing to do with the cause of their stress. 
Humanity is consumed with wars and ethnic animosity. The nightmare climate change scenario takes over. Warming seawater temperatures change from occasional El Nino conditions in the Pacific Ocean to predominant El Nino conditions, in which strong rains no longer drench the Amazon basin, and the Amazon is faced with droughts. Dying forests and massive wildfires mean the Amazonian rainforests no longer play the major role they used to play in removing CO2 from our atmosphere. Ice sheets melt in the Arctic. When these areas were covered in ice, a majority of the sun's heat that was shown on them was reflected back into space. Now it's absorbed into the much darker ocean, warming the oceans even more. The Arctic permafrost melts, sending many gigatons of methane into the atmosphere, warming the atmosphere even more. With all these negative feedback loops and more, the Earth experiences the runaway greenhouse effect that climate scientists have warned against for so many years. With the inevitable wars, mass dyings, and devastated economies, the world of our grandchildren's grandchildren would be unrecognizable to any of its early 21st century denizens. The worst-case scenario of runaway climate change seems almost too terrible to contemplate. But contemplate it, we must. Because it's a very real possibility. And allowing it to happen, being the generation that failed to prevent it, would be a far, far too horrific legacy for any generation. Predicting the future is obviously fraught with danger. But I don't think the axials will follow the nightmare climate change scenario path. I don't think they will, for the reasons I've cited earlier, and, in the words of Mr. Rogers, because one of the greatest dignities of humankind is that each successive generation is invested in the welfare of each new generation. Sadly, it's a dignity that we prodigals, with all of our climate change denialism and profligate spending, won't be able to claim. Still, I believe strongly that it will be the Axials' legacy. My prediction is that the Axials will follow a path something close to the following. Having come through COVID-19, they have developed an even stronger character than they had going into the pandemic. Having then marched in the streets, supporting the BLM movement, and seeing that strong social movements do lead to major changes, the Axials become incensed and take to the streets and become active. They first force a reluctant Congress to make significant changes to stop global warming. Then, they elect leaders that are serious about halting global warming. Their anger at an older generation who has demanded that the Axials face a future of austerity in order to fund their excesses finally boils over. They raise the taxes on the super-rich not simply to the reasonable taxes that they paid before the neocons reduced them and shifted the weight of taxation to the middle class, but even higher now to pay back all of the taxes that they avoided for so many years. Understanding that we can't continue to face the future with huge deficits and realizing that rolling back taxes on the super-rich alone is not going to pay off the deficit, they choose a different approach than their parents, 
Instead of the reactive aggression, highly militarized approach their parents took, they learned that diplomacy is far stronger than military aggression and leads to more stable and financially sound regimes. Having strengthened their foreign relation ties diplomatically, they're able to reduce the U.S. military budget significantly. This and other reasonable financial measures allows them to begin paying down the deficit. You can imagine the rest. These generations don't feel alienated from other countries and peoples. Like the Evols and the Eseps of our opening vignette, they come to realize that all this intercountry aggression their parents have so successfully sold is simply yet one more iteration of the age-old fear of outgroups. Instead, they've learned to work cooperatively to face the inevitable environmental fallout that's coming and embrace people of different colors and beliefs as belonging to their same in-group. These are the generations that will change the world. I don't believe it's a question of whether they'll put a stop to the prodigal's wasting of the environment or piling up more and more debt onto their shoulders. I think it's a question of when they will rise up and say, enough. Your read this week is The Collapse of Western Civilization, A View from the Future, by Naomi Oreskes and Eric M. Conway. Want a different look at how the dystopian future caused by the runaway greenhouse effect that I envisioned above might come about? This is your book. Both Oreskes and Conway are prominent historians of science. It's a short and easy read. Enjoy. See you next week.